Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, we ask that we would find rest and comfort in your word this morning, that you would open it up to us and call us into this rest. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may not realize it, but the midterm elections are this Tuesday. I know we've kept a good secret of it, and you're probably not aware, but actually it's a pretty big deal coming up. One side is going to lose. I don't know which side that's going to be, and I'm not going to suggest to you how I think you ought to vote. However, I am going to predict the future just a little bit. Whichever side prevails, whichever side loses on Tuesday, one thing I know is going to happen, all of the media surrogates are going to have to get out there and explain what happens. The side that loses, their representatives are going to have to go out and explain why they failed. I'm not much of a prophet, but I already know what they're going to say. I already know what the explanation is going to be. No matter what the outcome, they're going to blame the voters. They're going to say, the problem was you. The problem was that you didn't know what was good for you. That you didn't vote the way that you ought to have voted. That you weren't smart enough to see your own interests. Or maybe that you were too foolish to see through the lies of the other side. But... However it comes, and however you slice it, the message, whoever it's coming from, will be more or less the same. If we failed, it's because of you. It's awkward sometimes to have to explain your failures, to have to give an account for why what you're trying to do isn't working. Here in our text, Jesus finds himself having to do exactly what those pundits will be doing later this week. Jesus engages in a little bit of punditry, you might say. He has to explain the failure of the kingdom. He's just been talking about resistance to the kingdom. The fact that the people who should have embraced the kingdom have instead rejected it. And here he explains why that is. But his message is not the same as what you're going to hear later this week. His explanation for this failure is not to blame you. He does something else, something really surprising. He doesn't say it's because people are stupid. He doesn't say it's because they're not wise enough to choose correctly. 
what he actually says, if you meditate on it, if you take seriously Jesus' explanation for what's going on, it would change everything upside down. You would see everything differently if you actually believed that Jesus believes that this is what's going on. But what he says after that is even more surprising. Jesus explains the resistance to God's kingdom. Jesus explains the resistance as God's choice. His explanation is, it's God's choice. And he doesn't feel about that resistance the way that you might expect him to. And finally, Jesus answers all resistance with a call to stop resisting and start resting. We're going to look at his explanation. We're going to look at how he feels about his explanation and then what it leads him to say after that. Let's consider his explanation first and how he feels about it. How does Jesus explain the resistance to the kingdom and how does he feel about that explanation? He says the Father's plan is what explains what's happening. And the Son rejoices in it. Now, faced with the obstacles that Jesus is facing, seeing that his kingdom is not being received, whether it comes in, as we saw last time, the hard call to repentance or the easy call to joy in grace, people are rejecting it either way. You might ask yourself, how under these circumstances can Jesus persist in being winsomely reformed? Like, doesn't he need to change things up if he's going to get the results that he needs to get? We saw last week Jesus came with a cheerful and sprightly song. But even so, the kingdom was rejected. In contemporary terms, Jesus' cultural strategy had failed. And when your cultural strategy fails, you need to re-strategize. You need to rethink what you're doing so you find something that works. But Jesus doesn't do what you would expect. Jesus doesn't abandon his winsomeness and decide it's time to toughen up. He doesn't need to. Because the the hardness that might be the alternative has already failed before Jesus came. The call to repentance, to come out into the wilderness, has already failed before his gentle message has come and failed equally. So Jesus is not discouraged by the resistance, the way that people now are discouraged when they see the kingdom being resisted. He doesn't grow despondent the way that we grow when we see the rise of post-Christian culture. He's not discouraged. I mean, how can you persist in your efforts if your efforts are failing? Like, isn't that the definition of craziness, right? To keep doing the thing that is getting you this result and expect the results to change? Don't we say that's what insanity is? How can Jesus not change things up? Well, because he believes there's a different explanation for what's happening than than we might think. And he feels differently about that expectation than we might feel. How does Jesus explain the resistance to the kingdom? As I said, God's choice. God's choice. He could blame human foolishness. That's the approach most of us would take. Even in the church, that's what you hear so often. Why don't people believe? Why don't they turn to Jesus? They're just not smart enough. They're not like us. They hear the call, and they don't think. 
They don't examine themselves. Instead, they, they just turn a blind eye. They don't consider the truth of it. They don't get it. We feel sorry for them. It's a shame that they are not like us. Otherwise, they would be here. That's not what Jesus says. That's not his explanation at all. Jesus says that the Father wanted it this way. Jesus says that the Father had a purpose in it. And that purpose is to confound the wise and to reveal himself to the humble. So the deciding factor here, the thing that explains for Jesus all the resistance that he's being met with is this question of the Father choosing to reveal himself. But there are some the Father chooses to reveal himself to, and from some he is hidden. He shows himself to little children, Jesus says, but he has hidden these things from the wise, which explains their rejection. Jesus isn't concerned that the elites of his society are not listening to his message. That the only people who listen are the humble, are the poor, are the children. Jesus expects it to be this way because this is the plan of the Father. In other words, Jesus explains the rejection of the kingdom by introducing us to the mystery of election, of God's choosing. He does more than that, though. He doesn't just introduce us to the mystery. He also tells us what he thinks about it, or more importantly, how he feels about it. How does Jesus feel about this explanation? He feels gratitude. He feels gratitude. At the beginning of our text, Jesus is addressing not you, but the Father. And he says, I thank you. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. When you pray in times of resistance and rejection, I'm not sure if this is what you lead with. Your sense of gratitude. I thank you, Lord, that no one is listening. I thank you, Lord, that they're rejecting the word that I'm saying. I thank you, Lord, that they're there and not here. Of course not. Because you see those things and you feel frustrated and desperate and uncertain. But Jesus turns to the Father and he says, I thank you, Father. And then he emphasizes the sovereignty of that Father, Lord of heaven and earth, which shows that far from being discouraged by the resistance and rejection, Jesus understands that this is part of God's sovereign plan. And if we feel differently about God's plan than Jesus does, we're not seeing it the way that He sees it. We're not following Jesus in our perception of this mystery that He's talking about. In other words, Jesus doesn't just say, the explanation, the reality behind all this is this mystery of election. But he also says, I'm grateful for it. I thank the Father for it. And if we're going to follow him, we have to do more than just say, yeah, I guess the election is in the Bible, so I have to believe it. We have to be grateful for it. We have to see it the way he sees it, but feel it the way he feels it too. But why does Jesus feel this way? How can he feel gratitude for this? Because he delights in the Father's will. That's why. Because he delights in the Father's will. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
he emphasizes this idea in the versification of Scripture. That phrase gets its own verse number, verse 26, where he sort of redoubles his gratitude. Yes, Father! Insisting upon the gratitude that he's showing for such or because this was your gracious will. In other words, I'm grateful that things are this way because this is what you've chosen and I feel good. I rejoice in the fulfilling of your will. The basis of his joy, despite everything that's going on, is the idea that the the will of the Father is being fulfilled. Now, I'm sure when Jesus considers things as, as we often do in a sort of horizontal way, Right? When Jesus looks around him at what's happening, he sees the kingdom rejected and resisted. I don't think he sees that and is like, I'm so grateful. Right? I know he feels all the things that we feel when we look upon that. Because in other points in Scripture, we see him expressing exactly those things. Like when he calls people to repentance, he does it with, with a, a, a deep desire, a deep care for them. Right? He's not indifferent to the consequences of that rejection. But when he considers it, as it were, vertically, when he looks behind what's going on, he thinks about the meaning of it all, then he can feel this gratitude because the will of the Father is being fulfilled. But why would the Father want to do things this way? Why would his purpose be somehow to confound the wisdom of the wise by, by connecting and calling the humble and hardening those who you would think would be the first to, to get it, to see it. I think part of the way that human salvation glorifies God is the way that it confounds our sense of personal merit. That it isn't always the people who seem most deserving or the people who seem most capable of grasping it who do. We want to believe that we're saved because we're good because we're deserving, or at least because we're smart, or at a minimum, because we're smarter than them. Like, we may not be geniuses, but we are at least smart enough that when God calls us, we answer him. And yet, God's plan of salvation is orchestrated in such a way that it undermines those kinds of comforts that are based in the self. So, when that undermining is working itself out, When the gospel is actively showing us that God humbles the proud and rewards the humble, that's something Jesus can exalt in. He can feel gratitude towards that plan being worked out because he knows that's what it was intended to do. God is being glorified as he fulfills his will, as he demonstrates that he alone and no one else deserves credit for what he's doing. The Apostle Paul grasped this. He writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This was God's purpose. As Jesus sees him doing it, he's grateful. He rejoices in it. But then he turns. He's been talking to the Father, addressing the Father, but now he pauses and he speaks to us. And he explains a little bit, again, about how things work behind the scenes, how things work between the Father and the Son. 
where does knowledge of the Father come from? If the point of salvation is to know God, where does that knowledge come from? Well, he says it comes only through the Son. First, he says there's a mutual knowledge between the Father and the Son, and this mutual knowledge appears to be impenetrable. Like Only the Son knows the Father, and only the Father knows the Son. That makes it sound as if there's no way to enter into that kind of knowledge, that communion between the Father and the Son. But having said it, Jesus, as it were, opens up a door. Because no one knows the Father but the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him to. So it is possible to enter into this knowledge of God, but only through the doorway of the Son, only through Jesus Himself. Once again, this is framed in the language of choice. A choice is being made. A free choice is being made. But in the first instance, it's the choice of the Father that is emphasized. And here, it is the choice of the Son that is emphasized. All things are given to the Son. You have echoes there of Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Like all things are, are under His authority. He has authority over all things, but also echoes of Ephesians 1, that God has crafted a plan to unite all things in Him, a plan that has been carried out in this way. When you think about that relationship between the Father and the Son, it's something the Apostle John captures best. If you look in John's Gospel over and over again, you hear Jesus talking about this thing that He's speaking of here. John says in John 1, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. John 6, Jesus says, Not that anyone has seen the Father except He who is from God. He has seen the Father. Then the next chapter, John 7, I know Him, for I come from Him, and He sent me. And then in the next chapter, John 8, Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And then in John 10, Jesus says, Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then finally in John 17, O righteous Father, in the high priestly prayer, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. So the communion with God that we aspire to in salvation is framed by Jesus here over and over again in terms of divine choice, not human choice. Jesus explains what's happening by referring to God's plan, not man's resistance. His explanation for why this is happening is not in the heart of the resistor. It is in the mind of God. Which is not to deny a role to human choice or agency, but rather to establish an ultimate explanation for what's going on. He's not saying none of that matters. All that's real is God working out His plan. All of that is real too. But ultimately, to understand it, you have to realize that God is working out His plan, and this is what that looks like. And we should be grateful to Him that He is fulfilling His will. Having said all this very hard, Calvinistic-sounding stuff, Jesus then turns to do something that supposedly He's not now allowed to do. In the next verses, Jesus says something that people will assure you is impossible to say if you believe all the stuff that we've just been talking about. 
Like Jesus is talking about resistance. His explanation for the resistance is, is ultimately God's will and God's choices. And yet Jesus turns around and tells us basically, hey, all this resistance, it's hard work. And I'm now calling you to rest. In other words, he gives a call to gospel rest. Now, people who say things like Jesus says here about the Father's choice, about the Father's sovereign will, are supposedly unable to offer the gospel freely to sinners. It's a contradiction. If you believe in God's sovereignty in this way, then you cannot present the gospel freely to sinners. And yet, Jesus does exactly this. Jesus gives a very open call of repentance the most open, I think, offer of the gospel you may ever hear. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's going on? Is Jesus contradicting himself? Like, was he flirting with that Reformed theology, but then he's like snaps out of it? And he's like, no, wait a second. I can't go down that path. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to offer the gospel freely to sinners. No. He's being wholly consistent. It is because he believes in the plan of the Father. It is because he believes that the will of the Father will be fulfilled, that he can boldly proclaim this call of the gospel to repentance. His gratitude for the Father's plan forms the basis of his call, and it is a gracious call. But think about this. Who needs rest? Who needs rest? When you're going about your everyday lives and you see certain people and you say to yourself, you need to get some sleep. Like, who are the people that trigger that thought for you? (laughs) He should get some rest. They tend to be the people who are frazzled, the people who are kind of at their limit, sort of red-eyed, bloodshot, kind of looking like they're, they're not operating at their full capacity, like maybe they've taken on too much, more than they can handle, and they just need to sort of step back. They just need to get some rest. Those are the people, like the weary. The weary are the people who need rest. You might say only the weary welcome a call to rest. If you're not tired, you don't want to be told it's time to rest. When I was a kid, my parents told me it was bedtime. They never seemed to get it right because I was never tired when it was bedtime. In fact, sometimes I had more energy at that moment than I had felt all the day. Like it, it, it renewed my strength to be told it was time to go to bed. Right? I didn't need a call to rest because I wasn't weary. It's only when you're weary that you welcome a call to rest. To be honest with you, when I was a young man in the church and I heard these words of Jesus, come to me and I will give you rest, I did not find them very moving. As a metaphor for the gospel, I could think of much better ways. When Paul talks about the gospel as God's great plan to reconcile us to himself, to make peace where there was once conflict, I thought that was a much better way to talk about the gospel than come to me and I will give you rest. Because I wasn't tired. I didn't feel weary. I'm a little older now, though. And frankly, I welcome all calls to rest at this point. And I suspect you do, too. It's fascinating how much of our conversations revolve around how busy we are. You ask people what's going on in their lives, if if they're busy, no one ever says no. You almost feel like you can't say no, because if, if you do, if you admit, I don't feel overburdened right now, people might try to give you burdens, and you don't want that, right? So at least you have to appear to be busy. We're surrounded 
by people who are weary. Everybody is, is too busy. Everybody's too burdened, too scheduled, too programmed, too like, over-connected, too overstressed and overwhelmed. All of us partake in this. And yet, we're all really good at ignoring Christ's call to rest. It's funny, we've never needed more to find this rest, but we don't seem to be listening when Jesus calls us to it. We are resisting it, and that resistance is hard work. All of that busyness, all of that burden is a way of resisting the kingdom by ignoring it. If you're too busy to think about this stuff, you're like, look, this spiritual stuff, this vertical stuff, I don't have time to think about that. I'm concerned with this life. I've got real problems. I've got things I've got to deal with. I don't have the leisure to think about this spirituality, Christianity stuff. That's a way of resisting by not listening, by creating a little white noise so that you don't hear the Savior's call to rest. To enter the kingdom, you have to give that resistance a rest. As you know, salvation is by grace, not by works, but rejection is by works. It is hard work sometimes to keep it up. People work endlessly to come up with excuses, to make noise, so they do not hear what Jesus is saying. But what Jesus is saying is, let the noise stop. Let the resistance end. Come to me and you will find rest. You're tired of fighting, but you won't stop. Jesus says, lay down your arms and come to me, and you will find rest. We're exhausting ourselves, but we keep going out of fear. We keep going because if we stop and rest, then in the silence we might hear what Jesus is saying. And if we heard him, Truly, we might have to listen. And if we listened, that might change everything. It might turn everything upside down. It might mean that we're living in a world where what matters is not what's happening here, but what's happening there. And if you don't want to hear that, and if you don't want to have to live it, you have every reason in the world to keep working, to keep resisting. But Jesus says, take my yoke Upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's his call to us take my yoke upon you. There's something he's saying, a, a discipline he's telling us to take upon ourselves. You might think of it this way submit your mind to Christ, see things the way I do. Rejoice in what I rejoice in. Celebrate what I celebrate. That's the call of the gospel. If what the mystery of election inspires in you is anger or frustration or despair or something like that, then you're not receiving it the way that Jesus receives it. It's only when it gives comfort. It's only when it inspires gratitude that you have a Christ-like grasp of this. It's when you feel as he does about the things that he says that you have the mind of Christ on those things. If the resistance that you see all around you to his kingdom shakes your faith, or if that resistance tempts you to abandon the Christ-like grace 
that he modeled in favor of what you think might be some more effective strategy, then again, you're not responding to the resistance the way that Jesus does. If you have confidence in God's plan the way that he does, that means resting in grace despite the hardship. The difficulties don't get you to turn from God's plan and look for some other. Instead, as Jesus says, you learn from him. He is gentle and lowly in heart. And as you face that resistance, you learn from him to be gentle and lowly in heart yourself. But if you're too busy for this, you don't have time to hear this call to rest, you're not living in the kingdom, you're resisting it. Jesus calls us to repent and to enter into his kingdom. Some of us won't even do that. Some of us are are resisting his very name, taking his yoke upon us. We don't want to hear about it, but we need to hear him and enter into his kingdom. But some of us do believe, but we're not resting. We believe in him and we espouse his name, but we're not at rest. We're at war and we're as anxious and fearful as we ever were. If that's who we are, we're not living in the kingdom. We're still resisting it. We're still resisting taking his yoke upon us, seeing this reality through his eyes. The last thing I want you to think about is this. How can Jesus say that his yoke is easy and his burden is light? He says, take my yoke upon you. And then he says, it's light and it's easy. But if you think about that, and you try to imagine what sorts of things are involved, they don't seem easy or light. If Jesus says, come into the kingdom, follow me, be like me, does that seem like an easy thing to do? Is it easy to just be perfect? I don't think so. It's difficult. It's really hard. If Jesus says, hey, you're going to endure suffering You may lose things that are valuable to you. People who you love may turn their back upon you. You may lose even your life, but not before suffering greatly. Does that sound light? Is that not much of a burden? To me, it sounds like a really heavy burden. It doesn't make sense that Jesus, again, takes these things that appear to be very heavy and anything but easy, and he speaks about them with such Lightness, as if they're almost nothing to consider. No weight in the world. How can he do this? How can he feel grateful for things that inspire so much uncertainty and anxiety in us? And how can he speak of things that are so heavy and so difficult for us as if they are so weightless and easy? He can do it, I think, because what the Father and the Son and the Spirit have done is take the the heaviness and the difficulty upon them. Like the Father's plan that He rejoices in, the Son's work which He accomplishes, and the Spirit's application which draws us into it all, that's what makes it easy. That's what makes it light. Without that, these would be the hardest things in the world. Without that, it would be the heaviest burden in the world. But with the work of God on our behalf, what is impossible becomes easy. That unbearable yoke, that burden that would flatten you if you tried to carry it yourself, when you enter into it with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, becomes as weightless as air. This thing that you might think taking into yourself and believing would change everything but for the worse, 
would make everything so difficult, would put you at odds with the world around you in such a profound way, actually when you enter into it, brings you into peace and harmony with what you were made to be. That's why Jesus was grateful for what He saw happening all around Him. And that's why what He offers to us is light and easy. is rest and not work. So as He calls you to rest this morning, whether you've never entered into His rest at all in faith, or you've entered in but you still struggle to actually trust in that rest, hear His call to rest and believe it. Jesus calls you to rest. To rest. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.